You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today we're lucky enough to see three sides of the blockchain and cryptocurrency coin, with experts situated in Canada, the United States, and the United Arab Emirates. You will hear them weigh in on what this technology is, its history, and where it's headed in fulfilling its promise to provide a unified, immutable record of things while adapting to the dynamic world that we live in. James Brown is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome. Today is Thursday, July 9th, and this is James Barron with CASA, and this is Alternative Thinking. Today we have Kunal Basin, Salvatore Fraternuo, and Peritosh Gambier with uh, KPMG from Toronto, Boston, and Dubai, respectively. Uh, we're going to start with self-introductions. Uh, we'll start with further so far, further so far uh, with you, Tosh. Thanks, James. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is uh, Peritosh Gambier. Uh, I'm a partner with KPMG here in the Lower Gulf, which is the UAE and uh, Oman. Uh, prior to which I was I was with a partner with KPMG in Canada. Uh, I am the national lead for blockchain here for KPMG Lower Gulf and was also the national lead of blockchain when I was with KPMG in Canada. Uh, excited to be here, James. Thanks for inviting me. Great, thanks. Let's uh, go to Sal in Boston. Awesome. Thank you, James. And pleasure to be here. Um, a director in KPMG's Blockchain Center of Excellence in the U.S. firm, and I co-lead all our work around crypto assets alongside Sam Weiner. Um, but increasingly over the last two years, have really taken a global view in terms of partnering and collaborating closely across member firms. So excited to connect today with you, James, with Tosh and with Kunal and share a little bit about what we've been doing. Thanks. And Kunal, right here in Toronto. All right. Thanks, James. Um, pleasure to be here as well. My name is Kunal Basin. I'm a senior manager with our technology risk consulting practice here at KPMG. And I also lead our blockchain practice for the risk consulting arm uh, in Toronto office. And I've been working very closely with Paritosh when he was here. And since now he's in Dubai, uh, I've been working with him very closely as well, and as well as Sal in the US. So looking forward to the podcast. Yeah, we're one big happy crypto family. That's what we are. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it sounds like uh, even though you guys are far from each other, you're very close and uh, definitely in this per- uh, cryptocurrency community, which is it's kind of, I guess, it's, it's ideas that brings people together as uh, having one currency, one means of, of uh, exchanging uh, information and such. Um, but let's talk about the thing that's on almost everybody's minds of COVID. So we're in three different countries. How is KPMG adapt- adapting to this, uh, this crisis that we're in? Obviously, we're all in lockdown here, which is very fun. Yeah, you know, it, um, <clears throat> it's surprising how t- technology works, right? So first of all, you know, I hope everyone's safe or whoever's listening to this podcast is safe and sound. Uh, it is definitely uh, uncertain times, definitely a, a pandemic. I've never experienced this in my entire life. I don't think my, even my parents would have ex- experienced anything like this. Um, you know, but we've adapted pretty well. Um, you know, over here in the lower Gulf, we've actually got various committees that are set up uh, to make sure we, we manage through the pandemic. I'm actually part of the communications committee as well. We have a health and safety committee, we have a business continuity plan uh, committee, we have a business opportunities committee as well, uh, believe it or not. And obviously the health and safety one is the, is the one that drives most. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been weird to say, but we're kind of getting used to the new normal, I'm going to call it. 
I don't like calling it the new normal, but you know, we've, we've survived pretty well. Actually. I'll, I'll hand it over to the rest of the guys to, to give their views as well. To Paratosh's point, we're in unprecedented times. Um, but I think in the spirit and in the ethos of this ecosystem and in the technology that we are all collectively working on together, um, you know, this is what this technology was, was meant to do to demonstrate how, you know, systemic failures across different jurisdictions, different economic systems, different political systems could be solved for using blockchain technology for value storage, exchange, voting, identity, et cetera. Um, and we're, I'm excited that, you know, the promise of this technology has never been more real as we've been faced with, you know, existential issues that impact all of us, despite where we sit in the world. So, um, you know, difficult times as always, but, um, I would say it's a testament to human resiliency and a, a potential for technology to drive change. Yeah, here in the Canada office as well, I think the firm was quite proactive in, in making a decision to allow everyone to work from home. Um, that, that was actually mandated since I've been working from home since mid-February. Um, so, And the firm has also has a BCP plan in place, which... Um, for people to come back to work and um, that's not something that we're, we're planning very soon it's you know only very few people who absolutely need to be here are, are allowed to go in there um, but the firm has taken very uh, preventative measures to ensure the safety and, and health of a good health of all their employees uh, and definitely technology enablement has been a key factor in the success of uh, KPMG as um, it didn't hit us as, as hard as we thought it would. Uh, and I think the adaptability of the employees uh, has definitely uh, been demonstrated during this pandemic. That's awesome to hear. And maybe a bit of background, because you, you mentioned uh, crypto assets and uh, everybody thinks of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and probably some might be asking, oh, well, Bitcoin didn't do well or did do well or whatever through the pandemic. I'm not even quite sure what the pricing is. I don't think it's actually moved that much, but um, how would you explain that, like Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, crypto assets, and then blockchain? How would you go through that taxonomy from one to the other? All right. So maybe I take a first stab at that, James. Um, so now I think we see pretty clearly within the market, there is truly a taxonomy of digital assets. There are crypto native assets like Bitcoin and ETH um, that are tokens on protocols driving the incentive systems, allowing for you to do peer-to-peer -peer transactions. And then there are tokens like security tokens or real estate tokens or other types of tokenized assets that represent the ownership interest in a physical or digital, digital good. Um, so in that context, across this taxonomy of assets, whether truly crypto native or tokenized assets that fall into traditional physical asset classes or new digital asset classes, the underlying technology blockchain can be applied in different architectures and patterns to solve for those different types of assets. Um, so I'll, I'll pause there and let Kunal and Paratosh jump in. No, yeah, you got that perfectly right, Sal. No better person to explain it than you. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll just add there's like, um, you know, <clears throat> there's obviously various forms of tokens, as Sal mentioned. You know, we're seeing a lot of tokenization happen at the same time. So you'll have the Bitcoin and you'll have, you know, your security tokens, but you also have the stable coin that's coming up nowadays, which is pegged to a U.S. dollar, mostly pegged to the U.S. dollar for from that, that's you know creating liquidity across various uh, financial infrastructures or mediums in the world, right? Um, it, it it is kind of important to sort of distinguish between cryptocurrencies and blockchain sometimes because or enterprise type blockchain because people 
always mix the two up. You know, if the easiest way I try and explain it is, is I explain it to my dad as saying, you know, Bitcoin is like internet money. Just think of it as internet money in the most basic form, right? Uh, blockchain is a distributed ledger. It's a form of a distributed ledger that can allow peer-to-peer transactions or sharing of information of any, any kind. So in the lower Gulf, uh, in UAE specific, you know, there are a lot of blockchain applications that are being used on the enterprise side. And at the same time, and we'll get into this later, the Abu Dhabi Global Markets, which is the ADGM, the, the regulator for the free zone, uh, has put a law that will govern cryptocurrencies. So I'll, I'll hand it over to you, Kunal. You know, for sure. I think what we have seen uh, in, in the market so far is, you know, as Parthosh and Sal mentioned, you know, we had the Bitcoin and the ETH and then we had the security tokens and tokenized securities. Um, I think it, it's important to know the difference between those two as well. Um, and what we've also seen is the, the other infrastructure that's enabling uh, the amalgamation of these two. So we've seen the, the emergence of stable coins and we're, we're increasingly seeing the interest in CBDCs, especially uh, that's been accelerated during this uh, COVID times and the need for it has been validated. Uh, we've seen Bank of Canada publish a bunch of research papers in the past, you know, past couple of months since the whole COVID situation talking about CBDCs and having that as uh, in their contingency plan. Um, another thing that we're seeing is the emergence of uh, some, some, as we get more regulatory clarity around the digital assets, we've seen the emergence of uh, ETFs as well for Bitcoin funds. Um, and that allows investors to get exposure to this asset class in some way, shape or form without actually going through the, the technical you know, capabilities that are required um, to, to get exposure and, and expose themselves to this new asset class of, of uh, cryptocurrencies and digital assets. Well, thanks. I, look, gee, it seems so simple, but it really covers a bunch of ground. And there's, a, there's so many different ways of slicing it. Um, and you mentioned the three IQ, like we were on, um, Peritosh and I were on a panel with uh, one of the investors in, in Fred's company, the three IQ company that came up with the first ETF that anybody can buy. So that's uh, the first mutual fund that anybody can buy that has uh, Bitcoin as an underlying. And that, uh, at the time, before it came out, that, wow, this is going to revolutionize it because anybody can buy this stuff. But uh, we haven't seen, I don't know where the pricing has been. I should probably take a look. And, and uh, it, have we seen this, the Bitcoin really spike up since then? Or has it been just kind of languishing? Or is it because I know gold has gone up in the, in the crisis here? It's actually been really interesting. So since the flash crash on March 12th, Thursday, March 12th, where Bitcoin dropped, you know, more than 50% um, or close to there, uh, we went from asset prices in excess of eight to 9,000 down to 3,600 on BitMEX and popped back up to stabilize at 5K within a six hour window. Um, that was directly driven by the equity market sell-off as the reality of COVID hit um, and the US market finally started to take the signals. Uh, since then, I think we've all experienced what has been an unprecedented period of global monetary policy where the Fed in the U.S. has printed trillions of dollars and there is no end in sight in terms of their ability to move from a policy position saying the spigots and the faucet are open to the other perspective of saying it's completely closed. So there's going to be a pendulum. There's continued expectation of stimulus. Um, and the implications in the equity markets have been clear. Um, we have now seen continued potential media and implications around statistics over the virus impact that are not correlating to what's happening in equity markets. Um, 
and I think you, you know, before we dive into the Bitcoin piece, it's there's a great piece that Ray Dalio just put out about the death of free markets, right? The idea that the you know traditional capital capitalism and traditional pressures associated with those conditions are not real anymore. In that investors are unwilling to bet against central banks in a con in the context of what's happening today. With that being said, over this period, Bitcoin has demonstrated exceptionally tight correlation to equity markets, specifically U.S. equities um, and smaller cap companies. Um, and what I would say is that while there's been a direct correlation in the period of rebound, we've started to see a, a decoupling of that correlation in certain circumstances. Um, and now having Bitcoin stabilized at about 9,300, 9,400 following this kind of equity uprise, I think we've started to see a shift in investor sentiment that demonstrates this is, you know, there is, this is a resilient asset class. This time period of human history is exactly what Bitcoin was designed for. Um, and I think a lot of retail investors and institutions questioned whether a risk event like this would cause, you know, existential crisis in the crypto community of Bitcoin going to a thousand, et cetera. Um, and I think that's exactly the opposite of what we've seen with the community rallying around these assets and then prolific institutional investors like Paul Tudor Jones saying Bitcoin is the hedge against inflation. Um, so I'll pause there. I know that was a lot, but it's, it's tightly, the Bitcoin price today is tightly coupled with equities and largely correlated to what's going on with monetary policy. The one, the one thing to know, right, is that Bitcoin, I, I wouldn't say like the, the volatility seems to be a lot less as compared to when it does, the, the crash happened whenever it was a few years back, right? So actually, before I go into that, fun fact, we were talking about 3IQ, Fred Pye was the guy who actually got me into Bitcoin. So that's a shout out to him once he hears this. Um, <laughs> you know, so the, the, the one thing to know, right, with, with crypto assets, right, there's always the, whether you want to call them crypto assets or virtual assets, uh, you know, locally over here, legally or re regulatory wise, it's called virtual assets. Um, there's probably got over 3,000, 4,000 coins, right? Bitcoin probably dominates 62% of that. So there's a huge correlation between all the coins and the way when Bitcoin swings, right? So if you want to call it a beta movement or correlation with, with Bitcoin, you, you will see a lot of the assets are quite tied in. Um, you know, and again, I go back with Bitcoin has performed pretty well. I, I mean, I think it's at around $12,000 Canadian uh, right now, which is, you know, still sort of on its high. Uh, you tend to sometimes see Bitcoin being used as a hedge against inflation. That's absolutely 100%. And you will notice it if there's in more uh, zones, which are where there's a lot of unrest. Uh, people will need access to various forms of liquidity. And you might see a spike in the purchases of Bitcoins at that point in time, because if you have money in local currency, that's just going to be devalued immediately. Right. So th that's all I have to sort of add on to that. And you mentioned stable coins. So I understand how those work. Why would you even bother with a stable coin if it's going to be affected by monetary policy of the, like if it's, if it's attached to the US dollar, Canadian dollar, or Swedish krona or whatever? Why, why are those uh, of, of any interest to anybody? Yeah. So this, the stable coin space ties very cl closely now to all the conversations around central bank digital currency. And if you saw just last week, the head of Visa's innovation function came out and said that central bank digital currency might be the most transformative application of technology since the internet um, in the context of how that can impact 
the lives of, of human beings participating in these different monetary systems on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but as far as the utility of a stable coin and answering that question directly, there's two primary use cases that we see in the market. And, and the first is the, the dominant kind of volume and utilization. In, and that is with regards to trading strategies through funds where these organizations traditionally have to either maintain exposure to crypto and the risk associated with that, or traditionally had to convert those positions to other cryptocurrencies or to fiat currencies, which has implications both on a tax perspective, um, but also with regards to introducing frictions associated with traditional payments. So every time you're you know, converting from a cryptocurrency to a fiat or potential with friction than you would if you were to go directly to USDC or some other type of stablecoin. Um, so you see it a lot for traders that are managing their exposure to price risk in the crypto space um, while maintaining the frictionless ability to move US dollars across borders. Interesting if the US government would actually be supporting that. That's interesting. So how, so how does the tax work? I'm wondering you must be a tax expert here because you're KPMG, but so if you were going between cryptocurrencies, that's not a tax thing? The reality of the tax position, at least within the U.S. market, is is still opaque as a result of, you know, a harmonious positions across regulatory bodies in terms of asset treatment, uh, the regulatory licensing structures around those assets, the regulatory treatment of the entities that are licensed for those assets. Um, and then you've got this whole new world of staking that is challenging the fabric of what we understand the IRS approach to be. Um, and it's 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 I'm smiling about it now because and the conversations I have in the tax space, like trying to have technical discussions about staking and how there's variable differences between a staking system and a traditional debt instrument or equity where you receive a, div a dividend. Um, it's, it's just a fundamentally different type of system, um, different type of engagement with a community versus an enterprise. And the, the, the unfortunate side of this is that the tax implications of proof of stake systems and staking systems have massive repercussions on the actual economic incentive systems of the protocol, the security model of that protocol, um, the willingness of participants in the network to actually stake their tokens, because it's, it makes economic sense if you, if you have a tax that's at a you know, X rate and it doesn't make sense if you're staking and have a tax rate at X rate, which is your short-term capital gains or whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. um, so the tax overlay of how you treat these new systems will impact the way in which the systems are architected and designed, but people just don't have clarity in terms of how we're actually gonna treat it from a tax perspective. So what do you do at the protocol level from a design perspective when you just have no clarity in terms of how the IRS treats it versus how every other tax authority on a global basis, basis does? Well, I guess we'll see, we'll see how that develops. Uh, just like most things, tax will find its way into pretty much everything and we'll, uh, and people will adapt to it and the, the whole systems will adapt. So, and one more thing that may be a bit controversial, but you have these initial coin offerings. So it seemed like, uh, you know, you really can't talk about life settles without the uh, strange originated policies and that and the viatical. So like people would put on a white paper, they had the ICO, they raised money, you know, then later on people figured this was a security uh, or some regulators deemed it to be a security. Uh, up in Canada, we've got I did a, a short um, survey of, of, uh, of not, not necessarily this, but the, the regulations behind cryptocurrencies and such. So if you can trade as much currency as you want yourself, but as soon as you start making it into a fund or selling it to somebody else, then it's, it's, it's deemed a security. But um, are those still happening? The ICOs, like you mentioned, like there's probably like 3000 coins out there. It, that's, is that 
a lot fewer than there were before, maybe, maybe Sal, that, that you've seen. And um, is, that, is that a viable option for, for people to, to look to invest in? Or is it moved more to these, like you mentioned, these, these security coins with real estate and other assets that they're backing? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll obviously steer clear from like an investment advice perspective. Um, you started this by saying the whole focus from a big four perspective or from the market angle around ICOs is contentious in that there are still lingering interpretations of what are the clear in the U.S. market, how does the Howey test apply? And, and at what point can you with clear certainty say that you have progressed your protocol and the utility token within your network beyond the point that it would you know be part of the Howey test when you're saying a common enterprise. Um, so you've seen a lot of the leading protocols on a global basis facilitate the decentralization and distribution of their token and the utilization of their network to a point where there is clear utility of that token on that network for distributed decentralized commerce. Um, so I would say from a market perspective, there, you know, there, there are absolutely still ICOs that go on. Um, there is a continued focus on security and broader asset tokenization. Um, all of those different asset types, there are, you know, there's media on a daily basis now about tokenization of, of everything from food to traditional financial assets and securities and real estate. Um, so, you know, I, I think the trend has shifted the, the regulatory uncertainty around ICOs and the enforcement actions from the SEC and other regulators has caused, caused people to pause and reflect. Um, but I think, you know, that there absolutely is a right way to facilitate the launch of a token on a native protocol. And there are certainly examples in the wild of that being done the right way, achieving, you know, the, the pushing the bounds of the Howey test and making sure that you fall within clarity for the regulators. And Tosh, UAE as uh, as ahead of many in ahead of the world in many areas. How how are they on these uh, crypto assets and cryptocurrencies? Yeah, so you know, like um, you know, the UAE is consisted of a few Emirates, right? So Abu Dhabi is uh, probably the the larger one where most of the oil comes from. But the Abu Dhabi global markets uh, did put out regulations. Uh, I think earlier, uh, late last year, or maybe sometime last year, and uh, they keep, you know, making edits to it. But they had they they started off with a virtual asset framework, uh, or they first I think initially they might have called it digital assets framework, uh, and then they changed it to virtual assets. And basically, it's allowing exchanges or custodians, and maybe even market makers to actually start registering in Abu Dhabi today. And right now, you, we have a host of them that you know KPMG is helping out, trying to get registered, actually trying to get them ready from a custody perspective. All the guys on the call over here are, are actually involved with those projects as well. Um, and it's actually pretty forward thinking, right? And you would think, so you know, why would anyone want to actually regulate a crypto exchange? Well, first of all, somebody had to. Crypto is here to stay. It's never going to go, right? It's, it's not one of those things. So to actually box it and say, you know what, you are going to fall onto this part of the security. So initially the framework was, this is what we think you should do. And then they just embedded it within its existing securities framework. And basically said, if you're doing a, if you're going to be a custodian, you have to follow the custodian rules. So, you know, getting the right, right framework, the IT governance tested, you know, penetration testing, all those good things that you have to get done as a custodian. Uh, if you're an exchange, you have to have margin, you have to have capital requirements, you have to have all these little good things. And, and it's, it's really forward thinking. You, you, when you look at those regulations, they're quite stringent and they're actually, you know, very well designed. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's a message to the, to the world to say, you know what? We know you're struggling with setting up regulated crypto exchanges, so welcome to Abu Dhabi, right? 
we'll let you play in this space, but you have to follow our rules, which I think is the, the right approach, right? You got to protect investors at the end of the day. And the regulations, I mean, you know, Sal, you've been through them as well. Like they're quite, you know, they're quite vigorous and to, to meet them, right? So it, it's, it's, it's exciting time for us because, you know, uh, as, as a firm, uh, at, at the firm, it's always, uh, it's all, the first thing that with crypto always goes and says, you know, why are we talking about crypto when it's not regulated? Well, now I'm finally in a country where I can talk about crypto when it is regulated. So it's regulated in Abu Dhabi, not particularly in Dubai yet, but, you know, I'm pretty sure the Dubai regulator will come up with something at some point in time. If there's one place known for its vigorous rules and uh, rules are rules sort of thing, it's, it, I think it's Canada. So, Canal. <laughs> Like I say, I did like a brief little piece on, on the security side, but uh, I think it's it's probably changed since then, since the last like year and a half ago. Well, uh, what, what have you seen us do? Maybe in the custody side too, I think we've been, we've got a few large custodians here. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think the, the Canadian uh, regulators have been in, in very close touch with, with all the community over here in Toronto and, and, and across uh, the, the country to really understand the technology and come up with regulations that are, uh, fostering innovation while maintaining uh, a sense of, you know, investor protection as well. Uh, we saw CSA, the first, you know, uh, notice that they came out with around the securities law implication for ICOs was in June 2018. That was not too long after the, the whole ICO boom that happened. Um, that gave some clarity around what and when um, would the ICOs be subject to securities regulations. Then we had in March 2019, we had CSA and IROC uh, that released a proposed framework for, for the crypto asset trading platforms. Um, and we also know that the CSA released their um, guidance on the application of securities legislation um, to the entities that are facilitating the trading of these crypto assets as well. Um, you know, regulate ent entities that are dealing in the space, we, we're calling them virtual asset service providers, so WASPs. Um, so WASPs can uh, actually register with FinTrack uh, as MSPs. And so they're subject to similar, you know, compliance requirements, reporting requirements, and AML requirements uh, as, as any traditional financial institution dealing in the space would be. So there are there is a right and, and, and right way of doing things. And I think the, the regulators in Canada are pushing for that, uh, especially there, you know, they've been very collaborative with um, the likes of 3IQ and, and some of the other entities that are trying to push things in, in the space in, in the right manner while being regulated. So we've seen a lot of that activity uh, in, in the last two to three years where regulators are giving more and more clarity to the investors while maintaining that investor protection and, and these entities that are trying to foster innovation uh, in a way that allows people to get exposure to this digital asset class in, in a safe and secure manner. I think one way you guys, I've heard of this thing called Chain Fusion, which sounds like a clothing line, but I imagine it's not. So what is, uh, I mean, all three of you have been pretty active in it. Uh, so what, what is Chain Fusion and how does it, how does it all work? So Chain, I mentioned when I started that I co-lead the work in the U.S. Chain Fusion is the ideation and baby of Sam Weiner, who's the co-lead of the stuff in the U.S. Um, and essentially is an accelerator framework to allow for the integration of different sources of data, blockchain native versus traditional information systems and payments, and to create a, con a structured and consistent data architecture across asset types, whether crypto native, ERC-20 tokens, assets tokenized on permission blockchains that are proprietary. Um, and again, alongside all these different traditional payment systems. 
Um, and then on top of all this structured data and consistent information, you have the ability to apply rules. So you can do basic accounting and audit functions like proof of reserves, which has become a conversation that is omnipresent in the crypto space around, you know, how, how should exchanges prove that they're not running a fractional reserve system by lending additional or holding positions in excess of what they actually have. So we have the ability to reconcile your sub ledger as an exchange to your, the on-chain positions across asset types and say that you have what you say you have at X point in time, which is obviously a critical capability from an audit perspective. Um, the second kind of piece of chain fusion is around the compliance space. And then the third piece is all around wallets and custody infrastructure. Um, so it's really a, a data accelerator and framework that supports audit and accounting use cases, compliance use cases, specifically for AML. Um, and then the third piece looking at custody and wallet infrastructure. Um, the last piece on chain fusion is that it's not a product. We're not a product company. Chain fusion is built on integration frameworks with the leading technology product companies for infrastructure, data, and custody. So we've integrated with and have fantastic relationships with, you know, largely the major players in each of those domains. Um, and they are all being integrated into Chain Fusion. So we will have known integration deployment um, frameworks for all of the third-party technology providers that are serving uh, for on-chain data, for on-chain analytics, or for custody. So let's be formal here. KPMG is behind blockchain. Yes. It's not, <laughs> it's not just something like, yeah, we're looking at it. Like you guys are totally into this stuff, eh? Yeah. So I would say yeah. that the caveat being like, we're absolutely see the potential in the space. We're actively engaged. We've been in the space for more than five years. We started it in crypto and blockchain in 2015 and 16 in the U.S. firm. Um, but the, the only reason we've been successful in this space to the extent that we have is because we have individuals within our risk management and independence functions that are highly educated on the technology, ecosystem, business models, and are collaborative with us in understanding how to interpret the crypto or blockchain native risks and to deliver services in a, in a, a risk conscious controlled way that's aligned to all of the expectations of our regulators, right? Um, so I think it's our ability that, yes, we're in blockchain. We've been here for more than five years. I think the ability to do that has been driven by our colleagues in risk and independence. So shout out to Josh Close and Elena Zuberevsky um, for, for working with us and collaborating. Um, I think that's been the difference in our success. You, you hit the nail on the head there, Sal. So we're excited, uh, James, about Chain Fusion coming out because it's, uh, it, it's a state-of-the-art uh, tech that's coming up. Um, and, you know, we always struggle with uh, how, you know, clients always struggle with proof of reserves. It'll have different capabilities, which, you know, you'll find out as, as, as more we, the product matures. Um, but, you know, things like being able to do proof of reserves or actually supporting audits to a certain extent, you know, wherever applicable, um, it, it's going to be a game changer for us. So. Yeah, this proof of reserve seems kind of bizarre. Like I thought everything was just in the chain and everybody could tell where things were. That, that, that was, again, kind of the point, right? Right. And then, now there's a system to prove these reserves. Like we're, so where people are kind of playing fast and loose with what they had and, you know, like an old bank, like you say, they had, well, we got these gold bars in the vault. Yeah. Okay. And how many, and uh, yeah, who else owns them already sort of thing. So is that, is that actually a thing in, in crypto assets? Uh, yeah. So the, the way that this plays out is that for every, like if you're using any third party service, whether that's an exchange or custodian, um, there's a push towards, and there's some 
organizations that used account-based segregation on-chain. So every customer on your exchange has an account on-chain that reflects their positions. There are also exchanges that use omni-account structures where your position as an individual customer of X exchange is not reflected directly on chain. So it's about the aggregation of subledger accounts for all of your customers and the re reconciliation of all the wallet addresses you own against what's on chain. This is not from a technical perspective. This is nothing crazy. It's all about the idea of leveraging the potential of the technology to provide real-time transparency. And if you deploy proof of reserves on top of a, the Bitcoin network and reconcile with subledger, you can do that on a continuous basis. So you could have continuous transparency over that exchange behavior and positions relative to what their customers believe and what's reflected on these public networks that, again, are immutable. One thing that we have seen, you know, in the past is, is we don't want people to be driven away from this industry just because of, you know, the quadrigas of the world or, or the Einsteins of the world, especially in Canada. And to embed that trust in, in customers, as well as to, to give regulators some comfort around what these exchanges are doing, proof of reserve is a way for exchanges to really demonstrate that they, they are doing what they are saying uh, they do. Uh, and they are really holding those assets uh, for each of the customers that they are showing on uh, same thing on the balance sheet, their internal ledgers, as well as on, on the blockchain. Um, and that really allows them to build that customer trust. And that's what this proof of reserve allows these exchanges to demonstrate. That's good that everything's getting kind of locked down um, because I actually met Anthony Diorio back in it was 2013 or something. It was a, a Kai event and we went out afterwards and he asked a question and I answered it out of the group and he gave me 50 bucks worth of Bitcoin and then I promptly forgot my password. So that it's probably, I think now I asked, it's probably worth at least a grand. So geez, that's another, whatever there's 10 or 15 or 20% of the of Bitcoin that's lost because of idiots like me. So with you mentioned wallets too, like, is it going to be easier to figure out what's, what's in your wallet and, and how to get at it and stuff? Because, uh, like if I forget my bank password, I can always just go to the bank and physically say, hey, here I am, you know, set me up, here's my passport or whatever. But with this stuff, it's just like gone. And people, there's hard drives and, and people throw out and all this kind of stuff. And then you get the, you know, the Quadriga stuff's totally different. But even just the simple things of, of um, you know, if they have $4 million in their wallet and then that's all they, that's all your money, that's kind of crappy. So how are, how have these been evolving these areas? On, on the side of like the recoverability, anytime that an individual investor chooses to self custody, meaning that you're holding the cryptographic keys in a software wallet on your cell phone, subject to your iOS device or Android device security on a desktop, subject to your computer and physical device security, um, or on paper in some type of physical grade, bank grade security deposit box. Anytime that you hold your own keys, you accept responsibility and the risk profile of that position. So you have to be fully prepared if you're gonna self custody that every dollar you take at risk is subject to the controls that you implement around the way you use your crypto. Um, so not to call you out James, but the first foundational step here is to, to facilitate and to make sure that you back up your mnemonics um, so that you can recover your key and do that in a way that there's distribution in terms of geography that you're using the right physical security controls. Um, but on a broader basis, it's why you've seen the emergence of all of these licensed trust companies and exchanges that provide customer service to support users who lose their passwords. Um, so by leveraging a third party service and paying a fee on a transactional basis or on a spread for 
your exchanges, you're paying them to provide those types of security guarantees, insurance backings, um, and recoverability services. So I can call Coinbase or whoever it might be um, to, to actually recover my keys. Uh, and that's why from a retail perspective, when you're not, you know, when your full-time job isn't building institutional grade custody solutions for large financial institutions, you know, there's certainly risk associated with self-custody that should be considered and would probably cause a lot of people to not do that. Um, with that being said, the option has never been available before. So just in the fact that you have the option, it's transformative. Um, and the last thing I'll wrap on this would be to say, so you mentioned like people losing a lot of Bitcoin and all that kind of stuff. Um, Coinmetrics, which is one of our close relationships in building out chain fusion, has recently published this idea of free floating supply of Bitcoin based off of deep heuristic analysis of transactional activity across the network. Um, so if you take a dig into that, it gives you a pretty accurate gauge in my mind from what I've seen over what the actual free floating circulating supply of Bitcoin is. Um, and it's significantly lower than what you would expect, given how many have been lost, stolen, hacked, or are unrecoverable. Okay, thanks. So I guess it's something about rhinoceros and broccoli. I guess you won't find it. But uh, and you mentioned like large financial institutions. So what are institutional investors doing? Are they getting into this? You mentioned John, Paul Tudor Jones. So he's a hedge fund manager. I guess as an individual too. There's there's others who are getting into into these assets, um, uh, like uh, Galaxy down the states. Um, like there's a, there's a few family offices that are that are really hard, but but how about institutions like Canada Pension Plan, Ontario Teachers, uh, the Sovereign Wealth Funds? Are they into this as well? Because uh, they're usually they're they're ahead in so many so many ways, but they're also kind of going to wait in, in in some ways to see if something's not like they're not necessarily going to get into something that's totally controversial. So what 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 do you what are you guys seeing there? Um, so I can I can talk from from this perspective. I mean I'm still relatively new. It's eight months into the UAE right now, but um, <clears throat> I, there, there's definitely interest in 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 the crypto market, right? Either directly or indirectly. And what do I mean by that? Is uh, I know one of the sovereign wealth funds has invested into one of the exchanges over here uh, that's about about to get set up, right? And we're talking about you know the sovereign wealth funds over here are probably one of the largest in the world, you know, barring what's in Europe and, and Canada pension plan. Uh, so there's definitely interest in terms of wanting to play in the space because now, again, because it's regulated over here, it's it's an easy pass to go and say, you know what, we want exposure to this and either directly or indirectly it, it, with it, right? So, I mean, that, that would be my take on the UAE. From what we are seeing from the institution, institutional investor side here in Canada is, you know, definitely there is increasing interest. Uh, we're, we're getting a lot of questions as to how we can get exposure to this new digital asset class and what do we need to do to prepare ourselves uh, to be able to get that exposure in a, in a safe and secure manner. And custody is really, really the foundation of that piece. So a lot of the requests and, and queries that we are getting is around that custody infrastructure as what infrastructure do we need on top of what we already have um, in order to to transact on on this in this new digital asset space, um, I shouldn't say new. I think it, it's been around uh, for for almost ten to eleven years now. And, and like Barthor said, we, our belief is that it's not going away. Uh, it is here to stay, and 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 that's becoming the belief for a lot of these institutional investors as well. They've seen how. The, this as the class is, is not not as correlated to everything else that's going on, uh, and uh, I think that exposure is something that that everyone wants to uh, to get. And what we are seeing is increased interest in in understanding the the 
level of investment and, and the types of investments that can be done in the space as well, whether that be investment directly in, in the crypto assets or whether that's investment in, in institutions that are enabling such technologies and especially in the decentralized finance space, Sal mentioned a, a bit about, um, you know, staking as well as lending and, and how that can actually be something that uh, these pension funds and, and these banks can can get exposure to and, and get um, the, the benefits from investing in those asset classes as well. Yeah, the one, the one thing I'd say about Canada as well is there are a couple of broker dealers who are very pro-crypto. Um, and I, I think everyone knows who, the, who they are, um, but there are some investment broker dealers that are actually very, very pro-crypto and support the crypto community quite a bit. So I'll, I'll pass it on to Sal for the US. So. Yeah, I think similar to what I described, I mean, we we obviously put out a thesis in 2018 around the institutionalization of crypto assets. Uh, we've continued to see that trend. I think we've gone from that perspective to look at solving the core, core challenges that facilitate institutional adoption. And I think it's all around regulation and cybersecurity slash custody and, and managing the safekeeping of assets. Uh, those are core disciplines and capabilities that we've built on top of for Chain Fusion. So um, and understanding our early engagement in the market, understanding the problems our clients are facing, understanding the problems that institutions would eventually face has enabled us to build technology that helps to solve those problems and facilitate trusted adoption for institutions. So, you know, three to five years, three, three or four years ago, 2017, if you were looking to the market to say, I want, you know, a SOC compliant data provider that has a SOC 1 type 2, SOC 2 type 2, and can validate the operational effectiveness of the controls that drive their data products for us to consume, it didn't exist at that point. Now you've got a landscape of providers who are all pursuing similar journeys to engender institutional grade trust in their products and services. Um, so the institutions are absolutely coming. It's, it's continued to gain momentum. And I think when you have major public facing progressive traditionalists like Paul Tudor Jones drive that discussion, um, it starts to shift. And on the pension fund and sovereign wealth fund side, everyone's been waiting for this for years. I think if you look at what's happened with Grayscale from an investment trust perspective, those regulated asset, those regulated investment vehicles that exist today are where you're seeing institutional capital flows. And if you look at the premiums on those types of trust vehicles today, it's indicative of those, those, those movements happening. Um, the regulatory side of clarity and clear certainty to drive direct exposure to the assets is still some ways away at the scale that you've described for national and pension sovereign wealth. Um, but the ability to, to get exposure to the asset through regulated investment vehicles is occurring now. So, um, and I would say increasingly occurring with direct exposure to the asset itself. Well, I think we could go for another two or three hours on this, but uh, sadly we're coming to the end. So how about parting thoughts? Uh, again, we'll start with the furthest away with uh, Paratosh. Uh, no, thanks, James. Um, you know, I, I'm going to say this again. It's uh, crypto is here to stay. Um, it, it's not going away. And as we mentioned already, like, you know, institutionalization of crypto assets is becoming more and more common. It's becoming the norm. Um, we're excited about chain fusion and how that's going to impact uh, the market and how it's going to help uh, actually help with the institutionalization of crypto assets with, with the institutions as you see this being accepted more broadly. Um, yeah, those are my sort of my, my final thoughts and I really appreciate you having me on the call.
No, I, I would reflect and say the same. It's great to get together with you, James. Um, and it's it's always awesome to connect and collaborate with Paratosh and Kunal. Um, I think it's it's exciting to have the opportunity and kind of alignment on a global basis. You know, these guys being and myself being a representation of a small group um, that represents a far broader leadership team that's working to drive adoption and institutionalization of crypto and blockchain. Um, so, you know, very fortunate and blessed to have the opportunity to work with great people. Uh, I think we have an awesome team here at KPMG and I'm excited to see where Chain Fusion takes us. So thank you for having us, James. Cool. Last word to Toronto. All right. Awesome. Um, so yeah, I, you know, pretty much the same things. Uh, I think it's really, it's, I'm really glad to be here with you, James and, and Parthosh and Sal, you know, definitely enjoy working with you guys. Uh, we're uh, such a smart group of people uh, that has really allowed us to understand all the challenges that institutions and, and virtual asset, you know, service providers are facing and leveraging that experience to come up with solutions and, and accelerators to really enable uh, the adoption in the space. Uh, and not only from, from a custody standpoint, but also thinking about, you know, the future, the CBDCs, the stable coins and what that holds. So really excited to see where Chain Fusion and some of the other offerings that, that are in the works here at KPMG lead us to and, and really hoping for that adoption, uh, high, high skill adoption to, to take place in the near future. Very cool. Thanks, guys. Well, actually, we're here from Canal again on uh, August 5th in our family office on Weaver. We usually have a blockchain breakfast. We're starting a bit later, so blockchain brunch. Uh, so we've got a star-studded cast, including Canal, to talk about uh, everything crypto asset uh, and blockchain related. So uh, we'll look forward to that. And, and also look forward to having you guys uh, separately work together on another podcast uh, again sometime soon. Thanks, thanks a lot, guys. Anytime, Thank you. James. Thanks, James.